The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to start with a friend in Paris who's going to have some idea where the French art has been hidden. How can I help you steal our stolen art? The Nazis are taking everything with them, so we have to get as close to the front as we can. Look at this. It says if Hitler dies or if Germany falls, they're to destroy everything. Everything. Toward the end of World War II, an army unit nicknamed the Monuments Men raced to track down and recover priceless artwork stolen by the Nazis before it could be destroyed or moved. The movie, aptly titled The Monuments Men, is based on their recovery of more than five million works of art. It may not be as dramatic as going into a war zone, but today federal prosecutors in New York, known as the Klepto Capture Task Force, are working to track down and seize artworks bought or sold by Russian oligarchs as long as 10 years ago, even targeting specific works of art like Monet's Le Bassin en Neufia. And serving subpoenas on high-end auction houses, the goal is to get the assets before they can be moved to another jurisdiction. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Ava Benny Morrison. Ava, tell us how the U.S. expanded sanctions targeting Russian businessmen since the invasion of Ukraine. Last year, since the invasion of Ukraine, uh, the U.S. government has expanded the number of individuals that are on the sanctions list. And this was to put um, a lot of pressure on Russia and in protest, in opposition to what they were doing in Ukraine. The U.S. was targeting businessmen and their companies who had ties to Putin. A number of these businessmen, multi-billionaires, they have an interest in the finer things in life, real estate, artwork, yachts, cars, and all the rest of those things. And some of those assets have been contained and bought and sold and traded in the U.S. So it's definitely impacted some of those items. So what are federal prosecutors looking into specifically with these works of art and all the rest of it? The U.S. has had sanctions list for a long time, but there seems to be a real laser focus at the moment on figuring out if any of those sanctions are being violated. So federal prosecutors attached to uh, this relatively new task force called Klepto Capture are trying to track down assets like artwork and real estate that was bought and sold by Russian oligarchs anywhere from five to ten years ago. We've seen this focus in the art world recently. What's been happening is prosecutors are sending subpoenas to some of the major auction houses based in New York asking for any information to do with transactions with Russian oligarchs um, or with any shell companies that are known to be associated with those individuals. And over the past 12 to 18 months, those inquiries have narrowed. So rather than just seeing prosecutors are asking for information about particular individuals, Oleg Deripaska, Roman Abramovich, and a few other very well-known um, Russian oligarchs, they're also asking for specific pieces of artwork. So that suggests that they've got some sort of intel about particular works that were bought and sold by these individuals or by um, companies linked to them. 
We've seen offshore as well. Um, there's been a yacht uh, owned by um, a Russian oligarch that has been frozen off the coast of Spain, another one in the South Pacific. And there's also been real estate in D.C. and here in New York City that's been uh, raided by the FBI as part of these investigations. Prosecutors allege that these two properties in particular are linked to a Russian billionaire by the name of Oleg Deripaska. So the Department of Justice has indicated recently that they're planning to commence civil forfeiture proceedings against those properties. So are they not only looking at sanctions violations, are they also looking at possible money laundering? Yes. The two sort of go hand in hand, I guess, because some of the allegations in these types of cases usually are based around the fact that these assets, like artwork, property, yachts, were obtained through ill-gotten gains. So that ties into the offence of money laundering. It can be very difficult to prosecute these sanctions cases, but that is definitely one line of inquiry that prosecutors are going down. And as a bit of an associated avenue, I guess, that they're looking at is the facilitators who exist around these oligarchs. We saw recently uh, in the past couple of weeks, there were a couple of associates allegedly tied to that same oligarch I mentioned earlier, Oleg Deripaska, who are accused of money laundering and helping that oligarch evade trade sanctions. You said that these sanctions cases are difficult to prosecute. Why? A lot of these individuals are based offshore to start with. And secondly, it's not as easy as one of Putin's best friends or his lawyer or his banker walking into an art gallery in Chelsea and buying a magnificent piece of artwork. A lot of these transactions are done through shell companies. Relatives' names have been used in the past to purchase these kinds of assets. So it takes a very long time to sort of pick apart the web of corporate structures and other obscurities to try and figure out who the ultimate beneficial owner is of a particular asset. And one of the defences that has been thrown up before from some of these oligarchs is, well, that property or that asset is owned by a relative or a family member. It's not owned by me. So that's why it can be particularly difficult to sort of wade through all those complexities and jump over all those legal barricades. There are some very famous artworks involved here. One you mentioned in your story, bought by fertilizer tycoon Andrei Melnichenko, was a Monet that he paid apparently almost $50 million for. So are they looking to prevent them from being moved? Are they looking to seize these so that they can stop any movement? Yes. They're going back and looking at artworks that these oligarchs had bought or sold many years ago and trying to figure out where they are now. Prosecutors are going back through years and years of records, figure out whether artworks previously bought and sold by Russian oligarchs who are now on the sanctions list have been moved out of the country. If they have in the past 12 months after the most recent round of sanctions or even for individuals who are on the sanctions list since 2018, that would be a violation of those sanctions. So they're trying to figure out where those artworks are, if they have been moved out of the country, how long ago they were moved out of the country, how they got out, whose name that they were shipped out of as well. You know, a number of these oligarchs, their taste for art and their interest in art has been very well documented and we're talking pieces worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. So it's been very interesting, I guess, for prosecutors to try and figure out where some of these artworks are. And there's a recent case, actually, where one of the oligarchs had bought 
more than a dozen pieces of artwork in 2008 and they just sat in a storage facility in New York until 2018-19 when someone who worked for him tried to have them sent out of the country. Yeah, and that man has been indicted, Graham Bonham Carter, and he's fighting extradition? That's right. He's based in the UK, um, Graham Bonham Carter, and he was working for Oleg Deripaska. And the prosecutors alleged that while he was based in the UK, he um, contacted an auction house in New York and uh, tried to pass off Deripaska's artworks as his own. He tried to have them shipped from the auction house in New York to London, which would have been a clear violation of trade sanctions. But it was actually the auction house that raised a red flag in the first place. They went through their records and saw that the artworks had actually been purchased under the name of a shell company, which was linked to Deripaska more than 10 years ago. And they challenged Graham Bonham Carter on this. And he tried to push back. He said, just give me a little bit more time and I'll come up with some proof to show that it is mine. And you know, here's my um, credit card statement showing that I'm paying for the shipping. But it just wasn't enough to convince the auction house that the artworks were in fact his. And they ended up reporting it to OSAC, which is a part of the Treasury Department in the U.S. that looks after the sanctions list. So have all the major auction houses cooperated with subpoenas and requests for information? When I went to the auction houses last week uh, as part of this reporting, most of them said that, yes, we do cooperate with law enforcement when they ask. And from what I heard from talking to different sources in the industry and legal sources as well, they do hand over the information when prosecutors are asking for it. It's not good for business to be violating trade sanctions. It comes with massive fines and there is already a lot of attention on the art world in particular. There was a Senate report in 2020 that looked at money laundering in the art world and it highlighted a very high-profile example where two brothers from Russia, the Rottenbergs, very wealthy individuals, managed to evade trade sanctions and purchase some pieces of artwork from um, US-based auction houses by using a shell company. Ever since then, the the industry has really made an effort to implement their own compliance programs, even though it's not legislated by law, to try and make sure that won't happen again um, because it really gives um, some of parts of the industry and the auction houses a bad name and, and they definitely don't want that. So, Ava, despite the major auction houses implementing voluntary anti-money laundering programs and even some including in contracts that the buyer or seller not be sanctioned or engaged in criminal activity – it still may not be enough to prevent the true owners of artworks from shielding themselves behind these webs of corporate structures or relatives. Exactly. And there's not a huge legal requirement on auction houses to dig very deep to try and figure out who the ultimate beneficial owner of an artwork is. One of the big debates uh, that was sparked by the 2020 Senate report was whether the art industry should be subject to the same banking and financial regulation requirements as the rest of the financial industry. So that would be the same as some of the big banks and the art industry, different auction houses, private sellers, would have to create money laundering programs, which are very time-intensive, cost-intensive, and it would impose a lot, especially on some of those smaller sellers, which don't have the same resources as the big financial institutions. That hasn't happened yet. So, you know, some of the big auction houses say that they make um, a concerted effort to try and figure out who the ultimate beneficial owner is of a piece of artwork. 
um, to go and figure out, you know, who owns the company that's purchasing the artwork. They don't want to miss any red flags, but they're doing that voluntarily. It's not a legal requirement, so there are still some details that can fall through the cracks. I spoke to one attorney who put it very accurately when he said, it's not like Putin's banker is going to walk into an art gallery on Madison Avenue and buy a Picasso. Is there any estimate about how many millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars of artwork are involved? That's a really good question. Uh, Not that I've seen, to be honest. From the interviews that I did from this reporting, it seemed as if prosecutors were sort of just starting to figure out who owned what, and they were starting to name different pieces of artwork and different subpoenas they were setting to the auction houses. So they might start to get a better picture, I guess, of how much artwork is left in the US that is actually owned by some of these sanctioned individuals. This reminds me in some ways of the Monuments Men who tracked down Nazi-stolen art in World War II. And it's interesting, this same um, US Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York has had a few successful investigations um, in seizing artwork that was stolen by um, the Nazis during World War II. Uh, and they've used the same proceedings and, and sort of the same approach, I guess, in these cases, civil asset forfeiture. So it'll be interesting to see whether they have the same results here. There is one interesting example when you ask me about whether they're looking at money laundering. One of the individuals who was named in the subpoenas was Roman and Bromovich, who's one of the more well-known Russian oligarchs who used to own uh, the football team in Chelsea. He's actually not sanctioned in the US, unlike the others who were named in the subpoenas. And Bromovich is sanctioned in the UK, which I thought was interesting because it wouldn't be as simple as looking at him for trade sanctions violations in the US. And when I asked a few different attorneys about this who practice in this space, they said that because he is sanctioned in the UK, prosecutors could be looking at whether he is trying to get around those sanctions and use the US financial system, which would be you know, through a form of money laundering. So I think that's a pretty key example as well uh, as how prosecutors are looking at trade sanctions violations as a whole, but money laundering definitely comes under that. It's a great story. I know a lot of research went into it. Thanks so much, Ava. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter Ava Benny Morrison. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Elon Musk is building on his Teflon Elon street cred, winning a case in which it seemed like the odds were stacked against him. Investors claim that Musk defrauded them when he tweeted four and a half years ago that he was considering taking Tesla private and had funding secured to make the deal happen. It was a risky trial that many high-profile executives would have avoided by reaching an out-of-court settlement, and Musk could have been on the hook for billions, but he escaped unscathed. After a three-week trial in which Musk was the star witness, the jury found after just two hours of deliberations that he was not liable for investors' losses. My guest is business law expert Eric Talley, a professor at Columbia Law School. A jury in San Francisco took just two hours to clear Musk. 
Despite the judge having decided that the funding secured tweet was false, despite testimony showing that Musk bankers had barely been consulted, and even a week after the tweet, they were still working out how the deal would be structured and who would pay for it. So Musk got away from a jury verdict against him again. Maybe got away with it, but realized that there is definitely a set of ground rules to bring one of these civil suits. You can't just rest on your laurels with a, you know, definitely a a beneficial for the plaintiff's finding that, yes, this was a false and inaccurate tweet that he sent. There are more ingredients, and that's what the plaintiffs were going to have to contend with here. There are probably two major issues that contributed to the outcome and, and possibly some more. But, you know, one of them, I think, was just that there really was a sense that the jury kind of had to, you know, figure out the compared to what story, right? If Musk's tweet that funding was secured was incorrect, well, what would it have looked like had it been absolutely correct? And there, it seems to me, his his legal team did a good job of saying, you know, at the time, everyone thought Elon Musk could move mountains. So even if he had tweeted out funding kind of close to secured, and I'm still working out some of the details, but I'm pretty sure this is going to happen, Maybe at the time, that kind of is taken by just about everyone as being the rough equivalent of funding secured. And that mattered and matters generally for defendants because if the nature of the misstatement, even if it was clearly a misstatement, if the nature of it isn't big enough to be really, really material or to have caused any any losses, uh, the market reaction would have been exactly the same even if he had said uh, 100% accurately where he was in this process. That is a definitely ironclad defense to a securities fraud lawsuit. And that seems to be something that the defense did very effectively here. The second factor has to do a little bit with um, how you present facts to a jury. This was never going to be the easiest lift for uh, the plaintiff class in this case, uh, in large part uh, because it not only involved getting to understand how these relatively complex securities markets work, but also different plaintiffs that were part of the plaintiff class. They had different positions in the stock. Some of them you know, were buying the underlying stock. Some of them had options positions. Those themselves can be horribly complex to try to work through. And the approach in this case was to handle both liability and remedy at the same time. So the sheet that the jury was given on remedy almost looked like a math, like a high school math test. And they had to, you know, go through month by month to try to figure out how much the, uh, or day by day, the, the, the stock was overpriced and so forth. And uh, there's one quick way to not have to do any of that math, which is to say, I don't think the plaintiffs made their case <laughs> on the basis of liability and therefore filling out the rest of the math quiz is not necessary. That's always a challenge in these cases. It's probably you know the big roulette wheel spin of you know, what's going to happen in a damages phase of the trial is something that both sides find hard to predict. And so this was one of these cases where we just didn't see that many cases that go all the way to litigation. This jury you know, felt evidently comfortable enough in their conclusion that there just hadn't been enough in there to, to show liability 
that they were able to conclude, much to their relief, no doubt, that they didn't have to then start engaging in computations related to damages. So the foreman of the jury said the case against Musk was disorganized. He wasn't sure what the plaintiffs were driving at, and the lawsuit seemed to be relying on just the tweets. He said that Musk's lawyers did a better job of showing that Musk was presenting what he believed to be true and was acting as a genuine bidder for the going private transaction. Did Musk just mesmerize the jury? I think there's probably always a a possibility that Musk has mesmerized someone in a jury pool or a a general investing public. He still has some of that gravity-defying power. That bloom is definitely at least partially off the rose over the last six months. And in fact, Musk's team themselves had moved to try to relocate the trial to Texas under the theory that he couldn't get a fair trial in the Bay Area. That never happened. Um, But, you know, I think that was in part an acknowledgement of the fact that the number of folks out there that are willing to, you know, effectively take it on faith whenever Elon Musk utters something uh, has gone down. That having been said, I do think that the defense did a good job of, um, you know, trying to make sure the jury transported themselves back to 2018, uh, where Elon Musk still had an almost a, an unalloyed mythical, you know, sort of aura around him. And uh, that has more of the ability to move markets, even if uh, you're not, you know, saying things with great certainty, like funding secured. And and I think that the the defense did a good job of picking apart the different ingredients that have to go in to a civil claim for securities fraud, finding a couple of those in which it's not really clear that he was acting, you know, from a desire to mislead people. And in fact, you could tell a story, as Musk himself did on the stand, that, you know, he was just trying to keep people informed of what was going on and may have inartfully chosen a few words. But the gist of his uh, of his message, at least according to him, was truthful. And so, uh, you know, it, it's usually the case in, in a lot of these uh, business litigation matters that uh, there are multiple parts of a cause of action that defendants, if they kind of make the world look complex, they have more of a chance of winning on one or two of those elements. And all, if all of them are required, that's going to be bad news for the plaintiff. And so the defense kind of has a built-in advantage here. That advantage was somewhat depleted because of the prior uh, ruling on the falsity of the statement. But the defendant you know, still kind of had a position of saying, look, all we have to do is, is win on one of these issues, materiality, loss causation, and the entire case of the plaintiffs is sunk. And they did a pretty effective job of doing that. The plaintiffs, in contrast, their effort is really going to be, no, this is a really, really simple case. This is easy to boil down. You know, this is not uh, complicated. This doesn't require the jury members uh, to do, you know, double reverse, you know, flipping twists in the air to figure out what was going on. And there, you know, there's going to be a huge premium on putting on a, a very linear, easy to understand case. And out of the box, the plaintiffs in this case, the theory was a little bit more circuitous to try to get to what the wrong was. And and uh, that can matter, particularly, you know, with the jury of your first couple of witnesses kind of, you know, send them on a wild goose chase. There's just not a second chance to make a first impression. His lawyer, Alex Spiro, also won a defamation lawsuit against Musk over his tweet calling a cave explorer a pedo guy. Is this a case of a lawyer who gets Elon Musk and knows how to present him to a jury so they get him? 
Yes, maybe. Um, but remember, Mr. Spiro also was representing Mr. Musk in the Twitter acquisition that uh, ended up settling with essentially a complete capitulation from Mr. Musk. So, you know, in, in both of these cases, they've, you know, they've sort of fought it out uh, to a successful resolution. But, you know, I think it seems to most people that uh, the fight against having to close the deal on Twitter was a largely a white flag operation by Team Musk, or at least eventually became one. But, you know, listen, the quality of lawyers that Mr. Musk has is, is very high. Spiro is a well-regarded litigator at, at Quinn Emanuel. And as a result, you know, it shouldn't be surprising that he's you know, going to find someone that's good at what they do. And, and Mr. Spiro is. You know, I think that it also is sort of testament to when do you actually take the case into the courthouse and do the live hearing versus decide to save your powder for another day. And, and you know, in the Twitter acquisition, they decided to save their powder they here they decided to fight and uh, ended up prevailing at the end i wonder if the difference in the twitter case and the other cases is a judge hearing the case versus a jury that can certainly matter. The judge is almost always going to be more inclined to stick to their, you know, jurisprudential knitting on, you know, what are the, you know, key elements of the legal claim here and what is proven versus what is kind of, you know, gesticulated as a type of an innuendo or a hint. Uh, and so that, there may be something to that. You know, I, I think this case, to the extent that this was at least in part a process of kind of, you know, appealing to a lay jury, that had hazards in both directions, right? You know, even in picking the jury, there were um, many prospective jurors that, you know, described Mr. Musk as being unlikable and detestable. And so, so I, I think that you are sort of you know, playing a little bit more of a game of chance when you're bringing things in front of a lay jury. Uh, but by the same token, you do have the opportunity to persuade them by your demeanor, by your character. That probably gets a little bit more play uh, when there's live testimony in front of a jury than in front of a judge. The plaintiff's lawyer in the closing argument said this case ultimately is about whether rules that apply to everyone else should also apply to Elon Musk. So, if another CEO had done this, would they have gotten off? Or is it, well, it's Elon Musk. He's tweeting all day. He's tweeting a lot of nonsense. So you can't take him that seriously. Well, one need not venture very far into history to find other examples of CEOs whose tweets have gotten them into trouble. And in some cases, those CEOs have been sued for various manifestations of securities fraud. In just about all those cases, the cases just sort of quietly settle. We don't, you sometimes know if there was a payment made, sometimes we don't. And so the, the, one of the key differentiators here is that Mr. Musk was willing to just take this into the, you know, not only up to the courthouse steps, but over them and, and to, to litigate the case. The one, you know, is kind of left wondering, well, does this leave, kind of, what does this leave in its wake for those future CEOs who may issue improvident tweets? Uh, is this going to make them more likely or or less likely to say we're going to fight this out in court and not capitulate to a settlement. And, you know, my sense is that most people who watch these sorts of cases, that's going to be the more durable aspect of the securities fraud lawsuit on, you know, the situations, the frequency and the contingencies under which parties will settle the case versus just deciding they're going to duke it out in court. We've talked about this before, how it's unusual for a securities fraud case like this to actually get before a jury. 
Did you, did others watching this learn anything from this case, getting to the jury? I think one of the key lessons is if you're going to put a securities fraud case in front of a, a jury, you better be very, very conscientious of trying to simplify things as much as possible. That in some cases may mean that you want to split the liability phase from the damages phase. Uh, it's not entirely beyond one's imagination to think that this jury was thinking, okay, look, it's kind of a close call on liability. You know, I guess I'd, I'd lean slightly against, but I lean even more against if I have to do the math quiz to fill out the damages portion of the case. So there may be, you know, one of the lessons here is that, you know, while there can sometimes be some advantages to just having the same jury process, both questions of liability and questions of quantifying damages together, that can be hazardous if essentially the, the verdict sheet, the verdict form uh, starts to look like you're you know, being asked to you know, retake the SAT or something like that. And so there may be a couple of uh, takeaways here for future cases that end up going before juries. Know how to articulate your case in a, you know, with relatively few moving parts and possibly you know, try to concentrate people's attentions on the liability phase without you know, sort of clouding folks views on, okay, what were the damages associated with it? So a lawyer for the investors said, we're disappointed with the result and considering our next steps. What are possible next steps? An appeal? Any case like this can be appealed. Uh, the, the, the problem when you appeal a case that now has some factual findings and then has an award is that to overturn um, a defense-side um, outcome below, appellate-level courts are going to be very, very reluctant to revisit the jury's interpretation of the facts here. It's given a, an enormous amount of weight, and only if there's just no reasonable way a juror could interpret facts in the way that they did would an appellate court say, okay, we're going to overturn that and maybe throw this back to being relitigated. So appeal is always a possibility. I tend to think in this case that uh, the best that you're going to be able to do on appeal is retry the case. And, you know, and unless you've got a good theory about how you can make this less complicated, uh, more approachable to the jury, it may not be worthwhile doing. After all, there is, you know, this was a, a fairly volatile period of time in the life cycle of Tesla stock. You know, during this period of time, it's definitely the case that Tesla stock was fluctuating wildly, probably not as much as it has fluctuated in the time since. But, uh, you know, there definitely was a lot of movement in, in the stock, largely due to speculation around this potential going private transaction. You know, at some point, uh, you're throwing good money after bad, continuing to try to press this particular legal claim. Um, you know, other options may simply be, you know, restructuring and rethinking the way that one invest in some of these situations and, uh, you know, possibly placing, you know, greater pressure on companies to, uh, to either audit or in some ways uh, censor for certain types of tweets that might be sent out that are informationally sensitive. To appeal some of the judges' rulings, I think most of the judges' rulings were favorable to the plaintiffs, weren't they? Certainly leading up to the, to the actual trial, the plaintiffs were looking like they were playing a fairly strong hand since some of the elements that they would have to demonstrate had already been adjudicated in their favor. That having been said, there was a trial for a reason because not all of the elements of the securities fraud claim had been adjudicated. 
And to to win on liability, you gotta you gotta run the table as a plaintiff. You can't just win on one or two of these elements. They're conjunctive elements which you've got to win all of. So you know the the odds had been evened up a little bit by by some of those prior rulings by the judge. But then ultimately it was clear to everyone that the judge was going to hand over the rest of these determinations to a jury, and there was no guarantee that this jury was going to act in a way that was consistent with how the judge had acted previously. Thanks so much for being on the show, Eric. That's Eric Talley, a business law professor at Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.